Welcome back, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences. We are the weekly podcast of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Friday on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you're listening to our podcast for free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends about us at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcast. I'm joined today in studio by my friend and colleague, Andrea picciotti Bayer. Good morning, Andrea. Good morning, Gracie. I wish you were so, here. I know. I'm, we're doing double studio today. She's in studio in D.C., and I'm in my very fancy closet studio in Miami. And it's working just fine, amazingly, because I know nothing about audio. But I've had a lot of help from good friends, including Mike Washabaugh, who's with us today producing our show. Hello, Mike. Oh, I've I've, I've I've taken him off. I got him off off balance. I'm sorry. He wasn't actually on the the microphone. Mike wasn't on the mic. I'm ready to go. I'm anyway. always I'm always on the mic. <laughs> oh, I'm always thank you, Mike. He's he's our fabulous producer today. And today we're going to have a really great show with a good friend of mine. We're going to have Gloria Purvis on. She's my friend on lots of levels, including Twitter. She and I are always going back and forth. Um, so Gloria Purvis and I we we talk a lot about something which is very. Uh, very important to both of us, which is the state of abortion and the way it's related to the eugenics movement and the way abortion dovetails in a really bad way with just racism Mm -hmm. in the United States and really all across the world. So we wanted to talk about this today because last week, Clarence Thomas, he wrote this really interesting opinion on the Box case that was decided by the Supreme Court. And he tied in in this decision in a very long and very interesting piece. He tied it in. He tied abortions, the, the history of abortion in the United States and big abortion into the eugenics movement and how big abortion started with eugenics. Well, Gracie, and so um, we really wanted to talk about that. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I think that you're you're absolutely right that, that uh, Justice Thomas kind of touched it off at the end of May. And we're really seeing everything come to a head, right? I mean, the people posturing for political positions right now are promoting this idea of abortion being good for women and good for minorities. And we're really hoping this this conversation is going to kind of reveal the truth, what's really going on both behind the history of abortion in the U.S. and its current effects on minority communities and women of color. Well, Gloria and I being minorities and Andrea being the mother of many minority children. Mother right? of many minorities. <laughs> <laughs> doing my share. She's doing her share for minorities. Mm-hmm. So we wanted, yeah, so I think this is a wonderful thing for us to talk about. And now I want to introduce our wonderful guest, Gloria Purvis. She's my good friend with an outsized personality and the radio host of the daily morning t- uh, radio show, EWTN, uh, EWTN's Morning Glory. She's a tireless advocate for human dignity, especially that of the unborn. She's a chairperson for Black Catholics United for Life, which seeks to increase the size and strength of active Black Catholics participating in the pro-life movement. What an important task. Of course, I know I follow Gloria on Twitter, and I love the way that she points out the racism inherent in big abortion. That's mm-hmm. a very interesting topic to me, too. And good morning, Gloria. Thank you for good joining morning, us on our ladies. podcast. ladies. Oh, my gosh. I am so excited to be here. And this is a topic that's close to my heart, one that I think needs to be spoken of, especially they need to hear from women of color what we think about abortion. Too often we've allowed Planned Parenthood and NARAL, in my opinion, to pimp the image mm. of women of color to put forward a, abortion as 
something that's good for our community. And we're here to say, no, it's not. And we need to see more women of color say, you know what, I'm a woman of color and I'm pro-life. And I think abortion is inherently bad for my community, for any community, you know? Gloria, do you find that that kind of what you're trying to promote, what you're trying to wake people up is is something that people are listening to or is there um, kind of a sleepless sleeping? Well, you know, I think when people hear and see me speak, it wakes them up because the way abortion is promoted, is it supposed to be a benefit for people like me, for black women? And when you see a black woman who's supposedly the beneficiary of reproductive rights, um, and, you know, that's supposed to be so good and sound. Well, you hear a black woman saying it's neither sound nor good. People yeah. are like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. what? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, and, and I it's, feel like I feel like it's offered. It's offered. OK, so the, the abortion industry offers abortion as a great good to women, but an even greater good to minority women. Yes. And I feel that very strongly. I really yes. feel that they're pushing abortion on us uh, uh, as this wonderful, liberating uh Yes, a liberating process, a liberating mm-hmm. procedure, but that we particularly need more because we are minority vulnerable populations. And I find that deeply offensive. What what I was really struck in just doing a little research in preparation for the show is is where Planned Parenthood abortion clinics are located. Yeah. And, and the concentration of these uh, abortion mills in predominantly minority communities yeah. strikes me as being... Um, Something that's horrific. It's yeah. a horrific, horrific presence. I um, was pointing that out, that this is not accidental. And um, one lady said, well, they have the clinics where they're needed. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, hold on. Let's back up with that. What do you mean by where they're needed? Well, these women are going and seeking these things. I said, don't tell me that um, by having Planned Parenthood that does advertising in these communities that they're there because these women are running out and saying, Planned Parenthood, please you. come and <laughs> No, and in fact, even um, Mona Sharon in her book Sex Matters talks about mm-hmm. the divide within feminism between black women and white women and how black women... Um, she doesn't say this particular piece, but how black women, their issue isn't wanting abortion. Their issue is wanting their children and being able to take care of them, getting help and support for that. Well, when we think about the supports that a, a woman, is, if she's a single mother or if she's struggling with um, low income, she needs a lot more supports and not just right. a quick end to her aspirations but don't you guys, and But don't you guys feel that Planned Parenthood and other big abortion, the big abortion industry in general, they create an atmosphere within communities mm-hmm. uh, and, and many times communities of color and commu- vulnerable communities, they create an atmosphere of sexual licentiousness. Like they're mm-hmm. creating that sexual licentiousness that leads to children who aren't welcome well, because they can't be welcome because there's no one to welcome them. There's no family structure. Mm-hmm. Does, does that ring a bell to you, Gloria? Well, I would say, well, yeah, the, their whole thing about liberation and sexual liberation is do as you wish without consequence. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, that's what Planned Parenthood in effect pushes. I, I remember seeing um, someone call it planned barrenhood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, That's a good one. <laughs> planned barrenhood. But uh, let's step back to the larger issue, I think, of these pro-abortion advocates. What they try to do is they try to paint abortion as this liberating feature for women. Oh, but if you would just abort that child, you can mm-hmm. have all the success mm-hmm. you want. And I will say this, it's not just poor women. Um, I will say women of color probably feel the stigma and pressure to not have a child out of, of wedlock, right? I will tell for you, sure. when I had graduated from an Ivy League institution, and I was interviewing for jobs, I was consistently asked how many children I had. Mm. Consistently. 
And my answer was, I'm not married. You know, and then you you can see like the shame on their faces after I said that. (laughs) But there's this. So in other words, what I'm getting at is there is this perception that at least in my case, what I experienced and some of my other young friends who graduated with me experienced. There was a perception that if you were a young black woman, you were promiscuous and had many children and therefore you Mm -hmm. would be problematic to hire. Mm. And so if you're already operating under that stigma and that pressure, as well, and then you've got Planned Parenthood saying, "Oh, there's a way out. You can live yeah. according to the culture, but don't have these babies." You know, it's it's a complicated it's a complicated situation. Gloria, no, um, and in the end, in the end, they're they're selling our children to us as purely burdens. They're mm-hmm. saying those black and brown children are only burdens. That's all they are to yes. you. They're obstacles mm-hmm. in your path to success as an independent, liberated woman. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, Gloria, um, one of the things that I had the benefit of. of experiences is living in South America for a number of years mm-hmm. and being in a 100% Hispanic environment. And mm-hmm. Gracie's absolutely right that family structures need to be built up mm-hmm. and the family is being un- attacked in Hispanic communities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very interesting to come back and see a lot of Hispanic women still are having children. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the, hus- the fathers of these children aren't responding and that mm-hmm. needs to be addressed. Um, but I think the next big ugly wave is to go and attack Hispanic American women and say, oh, it's a big burden for you to have children as well. And it's going to really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's there because I, uh, I go through Latino uh, neighborhoods and I see La Clinica and it's really <laughs> Planned Parenthood. Yeah. It's an abortion <laughs> place. Um, I've gone to um, masses at churches that are pre- predominantly Hispanic and you know, talk with the priest who may be a priest from South America, and I'm trying to talk to him about abortion, and he's telling me, oh, Hispanic women don't have abortions. I said, Father. No, they just don't say anything. I said, Father, <laughs> there are babies yeah, you can save and women you can save right now if you go up there in the pulpit and just, no, can you, you please just clearly. talk about this help that's available in Northwest Center, that's a maternity home pregnancy center here in D.C. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Can you just talk about that there's a pro-life office, that there are resources to help? And, I mean, he, the priest was just so shocked. And I was like, we've got to stop people from thinking, oh, that one community, you know, just will never. <laughs> no, no, no. It, well, they'll be yes. targeted. Of course. You know, we came, Hispanics, we came to this country with a strong pro-life ethic and mm-hmm. a strong family ethic, but we're rapidly losing it. As rapidly losing it. And that is the effect of these these sort of Uber corporations, you know, using us the way they use black Americans, mm-hmm. African Americans. They're using us as cash cows because mm-hmm. in the end, you convince enough Hispanic women to have abortions at, at five hundred dollars a pop, that's a lot of money in the bottom line of Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. Gloria, you mentioned about um pro-life clinics yeah. uh, being out there and, and uh, a couple of years ago we had a chance to work at the Catholic Association in supporting a Baltimore pro-life pregnancy center. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Greater Center for Pregnancy Concerns, Greater mm-hmm. Baltimore Center mm-hmm. for Pregnancy Concerns. And one of the things that I thought was fabulous is they recently um, created a new second second clinic mm-hmm. center. Mm-hmm. Not, a, not so much a clinic as more it is a, a complete wraparound service center. Mm-hmm. And it's right next to a Planned Parenthood. Yes. Nice. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and you, and you hear that. Their, we're taking yeah. their clients right? Right? Um, Because people right. want light. And and mm-hmm. when you go into the Planned Parenthood centers, you're not getting light. You're not getting the little light of yeah. a heartbeat. You're not no. getting the light of a future. Well, let me, and let me remind let me remind our listeners that we're listening that they're listening to the Catholic Association's podcast, our radio show, Ca- uh, Conversations with Consequences, and we have the wonderful Gloria Purvis with us today, talking about racism and abortion. And and with that, 
uh, Gloria, when you read Clarence Thomas's um, <laughs> really amazing uh, piece that he wrote uh, in his decision for the mm-hmm. Box case last mm-hmm. week for the yeah. Supreme Court, what he really he pinned down exactly the racist eugenicist roots of big abortion in the United States. How did was it amazing to watch a it, black, a black American like, justice and Catholic? Yeah. And Catholic. And Catholic. <laughs> it was, I, I was like, oh, it's in the record now, y'all. It's mm-hmm. in the Supreme yeah. Court record. I mean, you cannot that's get there away for, from that's this. That's there forever. It's there forever. I was like, finally, it's out there. You know, let them try to explain it away, but we've got it written mm-hmm. down. And hopefully for those people who think that abortion is such a wonderful, liberating thing, that maybe it'll give them pause to think about what it really says when what you're offering poor people of color is to kill their children instead of help their children, you know. Well, and, and appreciating it's it's kind of shocking as a lawyer to read this this great treatise yeah. on the history of abortion and uni- mm-hmm. in the eugenics, eugenics movement, movement. Mm-hmm. Um, in in a decision and and it's worth everyone reading. It's a great history lesson of where we came, um, the hard stop that we we put on the eugenics movement yeah. after like seeing it played out in Nazi Germany yeah. and deciding that's not the kind of people we want to be. Right, and we're then it's put, sneaking back in. Link. We're going to have the link to his to Just, his writing yeah, was, uh, on our podcast page, but it really is worth everybody reading because the history of big abortion starts with racist mm-hmm. eugenics. That's where it starts. Yeah, it starts with the idea that certain people shouldn't reproduce right. because they are a burden on society. Mm-hmm. And this is the mentally, you know, they start with the mentally disabled, but they're going rapidly. They They rapidly move on to people who they feel are not. You know, the ones that that ought to be populating society should be a whole other group. The imbeciles, the unfit. And then there's certain categories of that. I mean, I remember when was it Freakonomics? Hmm. One uh, was that the book Freakonomics. One part of the book talked about uh, criminality among people of color. And some people hung Hmm. on to those things as justifications for abortion. You know, better mm-hmm. to stop that criminal population, quote unquote, from growing. And when we speak like that, we lose the inherent dignity that each person brings with them. Well, and well, Gloria, what 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 we about were... that? Uh, I'm sorry, Andrew. No, I was going to say, Gloria, we were... what about that uh, <laughs> that uh, that la- that lawmaker the other day, a Southern lawmaker, uh, an African American, who said oh, something about. Who, who are you, I'm sure I you must remember his, his name. I cannot remember his name, but it was in Alabama, I think. And I was too Alabama. embarrassed yeah. when they showed this fool saying, and I'm saying a fool because what he said was foolish. They said, kill him now or kill him later. I mean, you're talking about. So his whole point, which made no sense, is that you're going to let these children be born. And then in a life of crime, they end up on death row and then you end up killing them later. As if Man. <laughs> I, I was just like, do you really hear yourself, sir? Do you hear what? What a what a way to erase somebody's a whole Value. group of people's mm-hmm. dignity just to say they're they're not they're worthless from the moment of conception. Right. Who says that? I know. Well, and what it, what's funny, Gracie and I were talking about this a few days ago. Um, for a long time, it was the issue about being wanted, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're, yeah, you know, wanted. Uh, an, an abortion is necessary because it's not convenient for the mother. Right. right now. And so maybe later on in her life, she'll decide to be a, uh, a mother. But that child isn't wanted. So that child shouldn't be here. And now oh, well, we're uh, adding. Andrea, and also that <laughs> unwanted children are going to be in here. They're going to be abused by their parents, yeah. by their mothers, obviously, because because they're not wanted. They're right. inconvenient and they're going to be treated as obstacles. Well, and now we're adding this this layer from from our past of fitness. Yes. Is is this person fit to join us? Right. Is is this person whether it's because of race or sex or or disability are mm. they fit and it's a strange return of something that I thought as a civil rights lawyer we had gone far beyond. We we really mm-hmm. understood 
human dignity to go beyond race, sex, and, and disability. disability. Well, then the thing about it that people could say this publicly and not be uh, run off the public stage shows you how far we've slipped into abortion orthodoxy hmm. being the only measure. Like, if it's an abortion in, in, in any circumstance, it must always be good that we can never the great critique thing. it. It's right. worth celebrating. Right, that you could never critique it. And I, and I was like, really stunned by how many people would publicly say on Twitter, you know, that they should be able to abort up through all, up to delivery, through delivery. Or even as uh, Governor Northam of Virginia was like, you know, would the child be delivered? Then we'll have the conversation. I was like, what? (laughs) And the fact that that any single reason has to be allowed, that you can't, you can't, outlaw certain reasons. You can't say, well, no, you can't abort a a child just because she's a girl or because he's black and Mm -hmm. he might grow up to be Right, whatever horrible thing you can think. (laughs) Well, well, that's the other thing, no idea about hope, that if you're born under certain circumstances that you have, that you... That you're locked into. That you're locked into just terrible Mm -hmm. circumstances. But let me go take it even another step. So what if somebody is born and they committed crime? So what? That doesn't yeah, so mean it doesn't allow right. for, exactly. for redemption. Right. What about redemption? What about mercy? What about forgiveness? What about rehabilitation? You know, I'm, I'm just it's, it's interesting that people are so quick to want to give a child the death penalty in the mm. womb. You well, know? And, and what it does to that child's mother. Aye. I mean, that's the other thing to yes. think of it. It's somehow liberating and wonderful and we're celebrating and she's going to be so much better off. Yeah, right. When I when I was reading she's Clarence not. Thomas's uh, piece on, on this, on his decision, in his decision, I was thinking, I was thinking of you and me, Gloria, mm-hmm. and I was thinking that Margaret Sanger would never have allowed us to be born. Neither you nor I. Yeah. Oh, I, no. And yeah. imagine what Margaret Sanger th- thinks about a woman that has 10 kids. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. You she, know, I, I think that it's really It would have been better for them the to gen- have been smothered in their Cribs. Well, I think she used to say that. She said that once, right? It's better for a I, family with oh. a lot of children to smother them in their cribs. Oh, no. I was just rereading. Um, what is her thing? Um, uh, Nation. Uh, oh, what is that? Margaret Sanger piece is very well known. It's just right now my mind is skipping it. But I was just rereading. And the way she portrays women with multiple children <laughs> is really something to behold. She cannot conceive of a woman with multiple children being happy. It's all poverty and and um, just poverty, abject pain. living and horrible and their motherhood and the children are, you know, not well taken care of. And I read this and I thought, well, help them. You, yeah, exactly. So you send some diapers. Step forward and do something. What about charity? Go help her wash some dishes after Right. Yeah. right? Well, it's, like, it's, you know, know, it's funny. Off, I, oftentimes people will ask, you know, oh, my gosh having another child or you have so many children, how can you do it economically? And I always say there's never enough money. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that a life isn't of infinite value. Amen. Amen. Don't you guys think that as a, but don't you think as a society, we're building a culture where it's impossible to have a lot of children because everything's too expensive and everything's too small and every, and, yeah. and in the sense also from, from the, from the racial perspective and the ethnic perspective, we're making, we're building a culture where, Black families and Hispanic families can't have mm-hmm. a child mm-hmm. because we're building a culture where marriage doesn't exist and where marriage Girl. isn't isn't supported. So we're building <laughs> these these cultures where where the happiness of children and the goodness of children and large families and any family at all is it, it becomes a dream of another era. You know, it's funny. Um, hmm. I think it's a falsehood. I, I have a 
a number of my older kids are, are away from the house mm-hmm. on camps, doing summer activities, visiting relatives, and I'm with the little ones. It's mm-hmm. exhausting mm-hmm. to not have the older yeah. siblings helping out. Right. A big family is a lot easier. Well, they help each other, right? And this is way you, what, how we're supposed to live, right? We all help each other, whether you're a big family, a large family. The whole family unit is about loving the other. And abortion actually asks you not to love the other. Abortion actually says, let's not give of ourselves to that other in the family. In fact, let's kill them. Let's kill the youngest, weakest, most vulnerable member of the family. And somehow that's supposed to bring us peace and prosperity. What a horrible thing. I remember the book now. It's called Pivot of Civilization. By Margaret mm-hmm. Sanger. We will not be recommending. No, you will not want to read it <laughs> unless you want to see podcast. her, you know, her odious thoughts. <laughs> well, imagine, imagine with these, with our vulnerable minority populations. Don't our brown and black children are wonderful. Yes, we ma'am. can't say enough good things about them. Amen. Gloria, thank you, thank oh. you. That's the music that tells me that our Gotta time wrap. with you has to be cut short. Oh. I think we could talk all day about For about sure. these wonderful For sure. topics. Thank you, Thank for you so much me. for Thank joining you, us. It was totally it was pleasurable. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this very much. Love to come back. Sometime. You'll join us again one day soon. Inviting myself already. Yes. You have already been invited. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Welcome back, friends. I'm your host, Dr. Gracie Christie from the Catholic Association, and this is the podcast, Conversations with Consequences. I am joined today in studio. She's in studio in D.C. I'm in studio in my closet in Miami, Uh, and it's sounding really good, I think, because it's covered in black foam. And hello, Andrea. Hi, Gracie. You sound beautiful, as always. So we're very, we've had already a very fascinating segment with Gloria Purvis. We talked about eugenic and racist abortion and the roots of the abortion, uh, the big abortion business in the United States being eugenics, eugenic, eugenicist, that's the word, right? Eugenicist. And, um, and now we have for our next segment, we're being joined by Dr. Carter Sneed, who is the director of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture and a professor of law and political science at the University of Notre Dame, and he joins us by phone. Good morning, Carter. Good morning. Thank you for coming on to our podcast and helping us out, because we have lots of important questions for you about the law and the political science behind all this. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to participate. This is a great podcast. I've been listening to it for for a long time now. Oh, you join really? That's thousands so good of, of you. subscribers. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I, I also did a, a review, a five-star review as well. So you'd be oh, happy thank you. Oh, that's so kind of you. You and my dad both gave us five stars. Wait, your mom hasn't. <laughs> your mom hasn't. She's she's still waiting. She's waiting for this one. We're convinced she's waiting this for is going to be off the charts, Carter. Yeah, no, it's going to be the best ever. It's a very special episode of the podcast. <laughs> you know, Carter, Gracie so Carter, and I were. Hey, it's all, We were talking mm-hmm, a little ahead, bit about um, what's been percolating, both Justice Thomas's opinion and and what's been going on all around us, and kind of trying to make sense of what is kind of nonsense in the uh, abortion movement right now um, to promote the idea of abortion being good for women and, and especially good for minority women. And we really wanted your insight and your help after um, the Box case came out to understand where the Supreme Court is and understand a little bit about what Justice Thomas was trying to shed some more light on. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm. Uh, this is a, a, a special case to me because I live in Indiana, and it was our our state that tried to pass a law that would protect unborn children from being aborted solely on the grounds of 
genetic, racial, or sex discrimination. And as we know, this is a, a common practice, especially as applied to children, unborn children with Down syndrome. And our, our state moved to try to to try to offer some protections to these to these unborn children on these on these pretty narrow grounds. And the district court struck down the law in a very cursory and I find unpersuasive mm. opinion. And then the Seventh Circuit affirmed it as well. And that came up with a, a companion law that required the humane disposal of fetal remains after an abortion. And that was affirmed by the Supreme Court, which was which was great, but the the provision of the law relating to genetic, sex, and racial discrimination was the the court chose not to review the lower court's uh, striking down of that provision. So that part of the law was struck down, and the Supreme Court declined to review it. So it's important for the listeners to know the difference between, and I'm sure many of them already do, but it's worth saying again, that when the court declines to review a lower court decision. It's not the same thing as endorsing it mm-hmm. or affirming it. It simply lets the decision stand without any action at all. It's a, it's, a, it's a neutral action. And Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion, makes that very clear. <clears throat> and he says, in his opinion, that no one should be confused and, and interpret this action of the Supreme Court as an, uh, an affirmation of the lower court's invalidating of the law. But rather, this is uh, part of the process of letting the lower courts address these kinds of laws in other jurisdictions to see how they how they decide before the court offers a final evaluation of these laws. So that's that's an important thing. It's a setback and it's a disappointment to me that the Supreme Court didn't take the opportunity to affirm this, this very modest and common sense protection for unborn children. But uh, it also didn't didn't uh, uh, didn't affirm the lower courts very bad decision striking it down either. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the sort of procedural posture of where we are. The, the court has said we're going to wait and see uh, what happens in other jurisdictions where these similar laws have been passed. Well, and Carter, Carter, my my I'm not very my not very uh, expert legal understanding of what happened is that Indiana was trying to extend the same protections that we extend to uh, to uh, to keep people from being discriminated against due to their sex or their level of ability, their disabled or their race. They were trying to extend these same protections to children just before birth, unborn children. And this is something that is supported by our Constitution. And it's running this this uh, laudable desire to protect people before they're born, the same way they're protected after they're born for these disabilities or, or things that might be considered negative, like sex, it's female sex usually, um, is running right into the this, uh, cons- you know, in quotations, constitutional right, to, for a woman to have an abortion at any moment during her pregnancy and for any reason. Is this a non-legalese way of saying what Indiana was trying that's to a, do? That's a very, very good summary of, of the legislative purpose behind this law. Uh, I mean, the whole spirit of this law is exactly the same spirit as our own U.S. Constitution, which is to say uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, an imperative to provide equal protection under the law, including for the very weak and vulnerable uh, and the weakest members of the human family. And it's kind of ironic that uh, the, the abortion rights movement, which styles itself as a movement for equality, especially equality for women, would pull out all the stops to prevent Indiana from protecting, among other among other uh, classifications, uh, little unborn girls. Mm. I mean, that's the, the as you yourself mm-hmm. pointed out. I mean, the 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 most common discriminatory judgment made uh, to eliminate a child on the basis of sex, whether it be by abortion or whether it be in the context of IVF through uh, pre, pre-implantation screening, uh, is to eliminate little girls. And uh, it's, a, it's a cruel irony that 
an, an, a movement that, that, that holds itself out as, as acting in the name of equality for women uh, is making it easier for people to exercise lethal forms of discrimination against little unborn girls. Carter, one of the things that I thought was very interesting in reading uh, Justice's, Justice Thomas's opinion was um, the historical perspective, which is not typical in, in judicial decisions, but it was, I think, really important. And one of the nuggets that stuck out to me was that this law in Indiana was signed on the 100th anniversary of the state's forced sterilization law, which has since gone out of favor. But it really does show in, in a century how um, our understanding of the human person and our respect for the developing child and, and women's fertility has gone from one place uh, and traveled throughout that period until where we are now. And it, and it seems like we're kind of on a roller coaster. I felt like we were just starting to understand things <laughs> um, and, and really dial back this notion that, that people should be forcibly sterilized. And now we're celebrating uh, kind of the, the cutting off of a woman's fertility through abortion and, and the destruction of her child. I wondered if, you know, what, what your thoughts are on the kind of long game perspective that Justice Thomas yeah, laid out no, there. I, I, uh, I, I'm in complete sympathy with your comments. Uh, uh, you know, Indiana, like many states, have, has a shameful history uh, of, of, of eugenic uh, interventions to, um, to, to, in some cases, forcibly sterilized, disfavored, populations um and it's a, a great source of shame and it's a stain on our on our on our on our identity as a state and as a people i mean sixty thousand people were forcibly sterilized in the sort of height of the eugenic movement uh obviously the the the, the, the primary uh individual groups that were targeted were racial minorities and people who were uh you know the poor and those who were deemed feeble-minded which was frequently just a conclusory way to label someone who was thought to be undesirable by the elite leading uh cadre of our of our community or our polity and um and i think it was a kind of a beautiful thing for indiana to to take this affirmative step not only to apologize for its its participation in this eugenic movement but also to take concrete steps to prevent uh, a particularly uh, violent form of eugenics in the form of abortion, uh, which targets children with disabilities, uh, certain racial minorities, and, and certainly females. Um, I think it was really important, uh, not just the substance, what Justice Thomas said in his concurring opinion, but also the fact that he was the one that said it. Justice Thomas has a kind of moral capital that no one else in the court has, being mm-hmm. a, an African-American, someone who grew up in poverty in Pinpoint, Georgia, who has suffered racial discrimination, who's observed mm-hmm. firsthand uh, the ugly consequences of, of, of our nation's um, shame in that regard. And to have him uh, take the opportunity in a concurring opinion, a concurrence in the denial of cert, to give, to, to teach us about the ugly history of eugenics, its roots with, of course, Margaret Sanger, the the, the founder of Planned Parenthood, uh, obviously beginning with um, a movement for contraception. And there's, of course, a, an ugly element of state coercion involving the state forcibly sterilizing people, but also connecting the dots for us as well, showing how abortion uh, provides an even more precisely targeted form of eugenic activities, albeit in the private context, individual parents making decisions about uh, about uh, the unfitness of their children, making choices about uh, whether their children should live or die based on whether they meet a particular standard of 
perfection, whether it be from, you know, cognitive abilities or physical abilities or the sex of the child or the race of the child. Um, it's really, uh, it was a very powerful prophetic moment, I think. Uh, again, not just in the in the excellent sort of summary, the historical arc that he traced, but the fact that he was the one doing it. I think mm-hmm. he has a special standing to do that, and it's important for our nation to think not just about what he said, but who it was that was saying. I'll take notice. Carter, when I'm not leading fascinating podcasts with interesting people like you, I'm a radiologist <laughs> and I do I do a lot of fetal ultrasound and I feel very strongly every time I read a fetal ultrasound that the the eugenic mentality has infiltrated, definitely has infiltrated um, the practitioners, OBGYNs, but also the patients, the mothers, the fathers. There's a strong eugenic mentality about erasing what is defective and starting over. And I've seen I've seen abortions not just for Down syndrome; those are more routine than I and you and I'm sure that you realize. Um, but also for even a cleft palate or a cleft mm-hmm. lip, I've seen abortion, any kind of deformity, any kind of fetal defect. I haven't seen. I don't think I've seen sex um, sex selective abortion, but I'm sure they're happening when I'm not when I'm not paying attention. What was interesting, uh, Carter? Last time I think I saw you was with. Gracie, when we were at the March for Life, and and I was going back a couple years and looking at um, the 2015 March for Life speech that Gracie gave, which was really um, beautiful, talking about how ultrasound, which as a mother, we know really is a great chance to connect mother and child and really have that bond, but it's got this dark side. And and it really, like you were saying, especially when it, it comes to fetal abnormalities or disabilities um, leads people to think of their child as not desirable, which is horrible, as opposed to inspiring in them a desire to want to get prepared. Absolutely. And I think it seems to me that behind this, I mean, there's a deeper anthropological point here to be made that eugenics strikes at the very idea of what a child is. I mean, a child is a gift to be received with mm-hmm. gratitude, not a project into which we pour all of our hopes and aspirations. My, my old boss, when I was the general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics, Leon Cass, said it sort of most beautifully. He said, a child is a mysterious stranger that we welcome and love unconditionally. And that is mm-hmm. that is Perfect. the opposite and antithesis of a eugenic mentality of trying to impose rational mastery and control mm-hmm. over the very birth of your child, over drawing lines of who lives and who dies. And, you know, some people have said, tried to criticize Justice Thomas's concurrence for saying, oh, well, he's 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 not uh, he's trying to equate private choices of parents with state imposed eugenic, uh, eugenic coercive program. But truthfully, that's a. That's not a very interesting distinction, honestly. Mm-hmm. And Justice Thomas was mm-hmm. right to focus on the fact that in this case, I mean, we've seen directly that the state is involved, right? It's the judiciary that is preventing us from being able to mm-hmm. extend protections of the law to the unborn child. It is the judiciary that's licensing eugenic choices on the part uh, on the, that's uh, right. in the state of Indiana. So it actually there is state action here. It's not merely private. But even if it were just private, even if it were the aggregation of private choices or even just one choice, one parent's decision to, in, to not tolerate the imperfection of his or her child uh, and to take lethal action in response to that, that is, that is a eugenic mentality. That's what makes eugenics bad. It's not that it's the state doing it. It's that mm-hmm. someone in power is making a choice to take adverse action, in this case, a, a, a lethal action, in the face of imperfection to try to eliminate that imperfection by eliminating the person that's imperfect. Well, Carter... I, I, I'm assuming you must know about this case that has been going 
on in the in the United Kingdom, a, a woman who is mentally disabled, who uh, she's Nigerian, a Catholic, and uh, she was ordered by the court to abort. They were going to forcibly abort her, and now it's gone on to the to their appellate level, and and that decision was was uh, canceled. Uh, have you been following that case, Carter? I have been. Uh, I've not read the actual opinions themselves. I've followed the news coverage somewhat, but I was so, I'm sure everybody mm-hmm. on this podcast was uh, relieved by the appellate court uh, reversing or at least staying the lower court's uh, mandate to the, that this child should be aborted over the objections of her mother as well as her grandparents and on the grounds that it was in the best interest of the, of the cognitively disabled woman uh, to have her child uh, killed against her wishes. And it could was, this, uh, is, is there any way this could, is this, is this something that could ever happen in the United States? A judge making well, a decision I mean, like that? So the question, if, if you were to have a circumstance in which a disabled person, a person who had no, no proxy, no, no proxy decision-making uh, uh, decision-maker on her behalf, uh, who was pregnant, uh, there might be a, a best interest hearing mm-hmm. to try to determine what the medical pathway should be uh, in response to the circumstances. And you could you could imagine the court saying uh, the best interests of this woman are served by by abortion. We've seen that the, the interesting the analogy that we've seen is in the cases in which a woman is uh, is in an accident and becomes either mm-hmm. comatose or even brain dead mm-hmm. and is pregnant. Uh, and, the, and the doctors, um, rather than this is a case in Texas from a couple of years ago, uh, because her spouse, who had the legal decision making authority, uh, refused to have the child delivered. Um, the child died as a result. So if you have a decision maker as legal authority, they can make a judgment on behalf of an incompetent person. If there's no, and, but this case is, in Britain is particularly dramatic because they were overriding the wishes expressed by the disabled woman as well That's as right. her family. Mm-hmm. I understand it. Uh, and this is, and so what we've seen in the UK over the past couple of years has been very, very surprising. We've seen this with the Charlie Gard case and with the Alfie Evans case, where courts basically take complete authority over the circumstances, including the people involved, and make a judgment, and this is the common thread throughout these cases, even though different statutes were involved, that the court says it is in the individual's best interest to die, that preserving the life of this individual is actually contrary to their interest because their life, their quality of life, falls below a particular uh, idealized threshold as determined by the court, despite what the parents want, despite what others, their loved ones want, and they effectively order the death of these of these people, of these disabled people. Um, and in this case, obviously, the posture is a little bit different because there's no evidence that the unborn child is disabled, but this, this is an action taken in the name of the best interests of the disabled mother. Thankfully, uh, an intermediate appellate court has, has stopped that from, from happening, at least temporarily. My understanding, and again, I, I can't confirm this, but reporting has said uh, that uh, the judge involved uh, who ordered the, the abortion was herself an abortion rights activist mm-hmm. before being elevated to the bench. Carter, I want to walk us back because we only have a few more minutes left, and, and I wish that we had a lot sure. more time. Um, but you mentioned, okay, so now Indiana's uh, prohibition on se- uh, selective abortions has been banned you know, from going into effect. There are a number of states that have these laws that are in effect, Arizona, Kansas, uh, Louisiana, and I think a number of others. Are we just waiting for the cases to percolate, for, for, for abortion activists to try to strike these laws down as being burdensome or difficult or and then wait for this it eventually to get to the Supreme Court? Or what do you think is, is on the horizon legally? 
Yeah, I think I think that that's exactly right. That's precisely what's happening. Uh, Kentucky just passed a law um, <clears throat> banning abortion for the sole purpose of genetic discrimination uh, and, and racial discrimination and sex discrimination. Um, we actually the, the Nicholas Center sent one of our uh, expert uh, witnesses, uh, Mary O'Callaghan, who's a doctorate in psychology, who you guys may have met in the past. She's fantastic. She's uh, the mother of a child with Down syndrome, and she is an extraordinarily effective. Uh, sort of public intellectual and activist supporting the rights of born and unborn children with disabilities. And she went down there and testified about the the pressures that are imposed on women during gene- so-called genetic counseling and the, the campaign to eliminate Down syndrome children uh, from the human yeah. population. Through abortion. We- we want and, to make uh, sure that our listeners so, know we're going to we're going to uh, tag a beautiful article that you and Mary wrote in public discourse about this very issue on the podcast notes. Thank you, Carter. And we do want to have you back on for we, please give us time soon to talk about 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 that specifically, that topic specifically, because I think our listeners would really like to hear about that. And thank you so much great. for joining us. I know that you're very busy thank moving. You I think you told us talking to you. Keep up the great work. It's a fantastic podcast. Wonderful. Thank, thank you, you so Carter. much, Carter. Welcome back, friends, to Conversations with Consequences, the podcast of the Catholic Association. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. This is our little segment called the TCA Clips, and we've picked out two articles from this week's clips that we thought you might find interesting. The first one is from Politico, and it was published on June 21st, and it's called Biden's Stands on Abortion Remain a Mystery After Hyde Flap. So this article is very interesting, and it features our colleague Maureen Ferguson, and it's about Joe Biden, who may very well turn out to be the Democratic contender for the presidency in the next election, and what, how he has stood on abortion regulations and laws over the many years. No, I'm really amazed. Uh, for, for many decades, Joe Biden was considered kind of a stalwart, really uh, defending life, and as a, as a Catholic, grew up respecting life, and was, uh, throughout his political career, um, opposing crazy um, unabashed, no holds barred abortion. And this this flip of his uh, on the Hyde Amendment really is surprising and, and very distressing for all all politicians to, to see such a bad example. So to review for our listeners, he opposed late-term and so-called partial birth abortions for decades. He even lamented that one ban enacted in the 1990s didn't go far enough on late-term abortion. He supported Republican president's prohibitions on funding for groups that promote abortion overseas or the Mexico City policy. And he even backed legislation that would have allowed states to overturn Roe v. Wade. So all these things are being used against him in the Democratic or will be used against him in the Democratic primaries. And our colleague, Maureen Ferguson, who's quoted in this article, says it makes you wonder what else he'll cave on the way he crumbled in 24 hours. It was more than disappointing. It was utterly disheartening. And of course, she's referring to his crumble on the Hyde Amendment. And and you know what the Hyde Amendment is, Gracie, but for a lot of people, uh, they may not know. And it's it's basically the Hyde Amendment prohibits federal funding for almost all abortions. Um, and, and basically, it's not using federal taxpayers' money to fund 
abortions here in the States as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, interestingly, he was holding on to that position on the Hyde, on the Hyde Amendment right up until just a few weeks ago when somebody pushed him on this and he flipped. And that is sort of sad for everybody, right? It's, because- I think it's sad for, for everyone, especially women. This is a really sad moment for our political leaders to be encouraging women to consider abortion as family planning or abortion as health care when we know the facts are, are really show something very different. Yeah, I totally agree. So the next article we'd like to talk about is from the Wall Street Journal. It was published on June 24th, and it's called Cradles, Pews, and the Societal Shifts Coming to Politics. And this article is is sort of worrisome because it talks about two trend lines that are going on in American uh, life. And one is that there's been a steady long-term decline in church attendance. We're down to only 29% of Americans now say they attend religious services once a week or more often, and that is down from 41% in the year 2000. That's a huge shift. And then the other finding, the other trend line, is that there's been a very dramatic decline in the American birth rate. And let's see, it's, it's reached a 32-year low. The general fertility rate fell to the lowest level since the start of federal record-keeping. That's... No, what... A, what- devastating news. This is really hard. And I think both Gracie and I were moms to many and try our best to be daily masters. And we know how important and beautiful where our lives are are made by the presence of faith and and attendance in our church and having children really has made made me a better woman. Oh, no, for sure. And you know what I think a lot about? I have two uh, adult children now who are contemplating marriage, both of them. And I think that they're really going to come into their own when, not just when they marry, but when they have children. That's when I see maturity really striking uh, young people is when when they're looking to the next generation and how they're going to um, give to their children the values and the ideas the, that, that they were raised with. That's when things come into focus and things get serious. Well, and when we're dealing with so many challenges uh, and temptations towards pride, one of the greatest Humbling experience is motherhood, and uh, mm-hmm. one of the best opportunities for mothers and fathers is is to go before God and humble ourselves and really throw our lives and our families into His hands and ask for you know, His and protection I think, and help. I think that one of the reasons churches are emptying is because people aren't having children. The two things work together, I'm right? I'm doing my very best to fill, <laughs> fill the cry room and the extended pews and drag, uh, I mean, have everyone joyfully skipping into our parish uh, well, you're doing a great job, Andrea. I can vouch for you. I'm doing the best I can too. I'm, you know, for me nowadays, I can still, I can still make sure my younger children get to mass. But now, when I see my adult children in mass, then I am beyond thankful because that makes me so happy. Now it's up to them, right? They're the next generation. So you can find the links to these articles on the podcast show notes to subscribe to the podcast and the media clips, which will be delivered to your email every morning please go to thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily, this time on the Sacred Heart. Please stay tuned for Father Landry and do look up his daily homily written in audio on his website, catholicpreaching.com. Normally, in this brief part of the Conversations with Consequences series, we focus on Jesus' consequential conversation that would be upcoming at Sunday Mass. Today, however... 
because it is the solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I think it's important for us to enter into this dialogue that Jesus wishes to have with us today. In the Gospel for today, Jesus reminds us of that parable of the lost sheep, that he would leave the 99 to come after you and me. It's always significant, I think, that we don't have a celebration of Jesus' sacred brain, even though he's the eternal Logos, the Word of God. We don't honor his hallowed hands, which in spite of calluses from hard work in a hidden Nazarene carpenter shop, brought a tender healing touch to so many. There's no commemoration of his consecrated feet, which traversed the ancient Holy Land as he announced the good news from town to town. There's no liturgical observation of his blessed eyes, which looked on the rich young man with love and were so powerful that with one glance they could make Peter weep in the high priest's courtyard. There's no festival as venerable voice, which amplified the word of God made man. While there would be a certain fittingness to honoring all of these parts of Jesus' sacred anatomy, Jesus never asked us that we venerate him under those images. Rather, when he began to appear to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque in 1673, he did so to request that a feast be instituted to honor him under the image and reality of his sacred heart. The reason is somewhat obvious, because the heart not only is a sign of the center of his humanity, but it's a sign of his human and divine love beating for us. To adore Jesus' heart is to venerate his great love for us. When he appeared to St. Margaret Mary, he exposed his heart, and she saw it engulfed with flames, a visible sign of the passion with which he burns out of love for us. Because Jesus has a human heart, however, that heart can be broken, and it has been, and not just when it was pierced with a lance upon the cross. When we fail to entrust ourselves to that love, when that love is unrequited, the depth of his human heart and divine and human love aches. Jesus told St. Margaret Mary as much in 1675. Pointing to his heart, he said, Behold the heart that has so much loved men that it has spared nothing, even exhausting and consuming itself in testimony of its love. Instead of gratitude, however, I receive from most only indifference, irreverence, coldness, sacrilege, and scorn that men have for me in the sacrament of love meaning the Eucharist. If that wasn't enough, he went on, what I feel most keenly is that it is hearts that are consecrated to me treat me this way. So many of us consecrated to him by baptism just don't prioritize his love. So in response to most treating him in the sacrament of love with indifference by missing Mass, as if it makes no difference, for example, Jesus wants us to make him in the Mass the greatest difference maker in our life, our true priority. In response to most, treating him with irreverence, who just go through the motions or even pray Mass poorly as if it doesn't matter, he wants us to treat him with deep piety. Contrast to the most who relate to him with coldness or lack of enthusiasm, who come to Mass bored and as distracted spectators rather than as ardent participants. He wants us to be more passionate about him than the most fanatical sports fans are during a successful playoff run. Instead of treating him with scorn, he wants us to relate to him with grateful appreciation. And rather than receiving him sacrilegiously, without being in the state of grace, without having a pure soul, he wants us to receive him through the sacrament of confession with souls fully cleansed of sin. In short, he wants us to treat his self-giving as he deserves. Throughout the world on this day, the church prays, O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, make our hearts like unto thine. 
Today, we ask the Lord to hear that prayer and to help us to treat him with the precedence, piety, passion, praise, and purity he longs for. God bless you. Our heartfelt thanks to Father Landry for giving us that beautiful homily on the Sacred Heart. Boy, Gracie, what a fantastic episode we just had. Uh, I really wish that we had a lot more time. I wish our podcast could be like three hours long with Gloria Purvis. I know, right? Purvis I feel like we barely scratched. Yes. We barely scratched the surface, both with Gloria and with Carter. I think we, I think we didn't plan this properly. No, what I, I think is, I think it, we should have done an hour with each of our guests. Well, I think the issue is just we're just starting to talk about this issue. And, and sadly, the whole country hasn't been talking about it for our you know, the last couple decades since Roe about what abortion is doing to our communities, especially minority communities. I think what we're well, going to do just, is we got to promise to put on the podcast notes tons of more reading material. People need to get informed. They need to understand what's going on so that they can understand uh, and go beyond the rhetoric of pro-abortion politicians. Yeah. And, no, no, you know, we're looking now at this uh, coming up, the, the Democratic platform, is abortion ugly. for any reason ugly. tax subsidized up to the moment of birth. And that's just that way. That's the way that party is going to run. So we need to be aware of what exactly that means and how this is not it's not congruent with a country that wants to have protections for the vulnerable populations, minorities, the disabled and, and even people who are vulnerable just for, by, by virtue of their sex for being a girl. No, it's an incredible affront to civil rights in America right now, what's being pushed and promoted. And I would hope that people from within the party and people outside of the Democratic Party are going to start saying no more. No more. We're fed up. Well, look, you're the lawyer, but I, I have the impression that in our Constitution, we have protections for we have built in protections against discrimination of people who are vulnerable. Correct. Uh, or people who would, might be targeted because of their race or, or, or ability. But we don't have a real, nowhere does it say that there's a constitutional right to abort your children no. for any reason at all. No, and I think that I Justice, might be, I'm being too simplistic. I know. I'm sorry. You know, Justice Thomas has always been questioning Roe and Casey, and I think that he really is putting us kind of on notice that things are getting to kind of the maximum level of absurdity. And hopefully the, the courts are going to be addressing this the way that they should, in favor of life and in favor of the dignity of all human life. Well, thank God for Justice Thomas. And let's hope that all these things keep becoming resolved in the right direction. So you've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, a service of the Catholic Association. I'm your host, Gracie Christie, joined today by Andrea picciotti Bayer, our legal eagle, and our great guests, Gloria Purvis and Professor Carter Sneed. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast of our show wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about us. We'll see you next week.